We are going to continue in our 2 Corinthians study. We've been in this 2 Corinthians study, this section of 2 Corinthians, which uh, I've kind of marked as the authentic Christian life. Of course, I got that from Ray Stedman. I think it speaks a lot about the um, reality of what it means to be an authentic follower of Christ and living as an authentic follower of Christ, that there are you know, stresses and losses and hurts and catastrophes. We saw that last week. These are, these are realities. These are things that uh, occur in our lives, just like everybody else experiences those things. But we experience them differently because we have this treasure inside of us, right? This reality of Christ in us. And we don't lose heart because we know that uh, regardless of what happens in our life, no matter how difficult things become, no matter how many trials we go through, we know that this is not the end or, or the end of the story, that this is just the beginning of the story, right? That this is actually a small prelude to the reality of eternal life. And so everything we're doing here is echoing into eternity and preparing us for eternity. And that while we can't see these spiritual realities that when we were looking at Colossians, we kind of called the above-the-line realities. Remember that, that illustration? Like, we can't see the things that are above the line. We can't see that we're in a constant state of renewal, but we are in a constant state of renewal because of the Spirit of Christ that lives inside of us. That we can't see yet this eternal weight of glory that's coming for us, that's, that's coming after this life, but we know that it will far outweigh any difficulty now. That as difficult as a moment is in our life right now, we're going to have exponential pleasure in heaven that far outweighs this moment of difficulty. Or even if it's not a moment, it doesn't, doesn't feel like a moment, it's months, it's years having to deal with some particular thing. In comparison to eternity, it is momentary, right? It is truly momentary. But when you zoom back out and look at the eternal perspective that we have, we saw or looked at the fact that our bodies are just this temporary housing, called, he called it a tent, right? That our permanent eternal housing is being finished. Of course, we can't see that yet, right? But we know that it's coming. We know the, the one who's promised us these things, and we trust in him because we know he's a promise keeper, right? And that knowing that kind of these eventual things are coming, that uh, we can live now with boldness, because we know that this is not the end of the story, that we can step out in faith, we can live confidently and courageously now, because our life here is not about somehow like preserving our life or, or trying to suck, you know, all the marrow out of life because, hey, this is all we got, and so, you know, we got to give it our best, got to get as much as we can out of this life. No, 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 we need to get as much as we can out of the next life. This life is simply a preparation for that so we can live boldly now. And so now we live with this walk of faith in trusting in the God who's got our eternity sealed up. Today, we're going to look at what this life looks like here and now, what our, what our pregame warm-up is supposed to look like, and, and how we're supposed to live in these bodies. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful to be together, so thankful to be able to look at your word. We just trust in however you want this morning to go, but we really want to know your truth. We really want to understand your truth, be shaped by it. I pray that you'd help me to make that clear to us and, and that it would be clear to us this morning as we look at the text and allow it to shape our thinking. God, if you need us to take a radical new direction in some certain area of our life or simply just be more conformed to the image this morning, help uh, us to do that. You're the one who does that conforming, so we want, we want to be soft clay in your hands to be able to mold. Pray that you do that uh, in us this morning and that we'd walk away differently than we came. Pray this all in your name. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 is where we're starting. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Now, just to test you, make sure you guys are all looking at the same thing. What's the first word in verse 9? 
therefore. And we know if we see a therefore, we got to know what the therefore is there for, right? In fact, through this whole section of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses therefore to build his argument one after another, after another, after another. And so this concept is being directly built on verses 6 through 8. So let's go back to 6, about the middle of verse 6. It says this, it says, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So he's saying, therefore, knowing that we all want to be at home with the Lord, that we all want to move from this tent we live in to uh, the penthouse that we got waiting for us, right? That we all want to leave this decaying body behind for a, a redeemed body, knowing that he says, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And again, the home is our eternal home, right? Whether we are in our eternal home or we are absent from our eternal home, which is we're in these temporary shells of bodies, these decaying bodies, our goal is to be pleasing to him. This is the authentic Christian life. This is the ambition of the authentic Christian life. We are ambitious. We have deep aspirations as authentic believers. We have a goal, one all-surpassing goal that eclipses all other goals in our lives. But unlike the rest of the world, our primary aspiration does not revolve around um, wealth or, or education or, or fame or respect or you know, getting fit or uh, trying to extend our lives by, you know, healthy living or those kinds of things. Those things aren't bad, but those are not our primary ambition or even one of our primary ambitions, the primary ambition that eclipses all other things in our life is to be pleasing to our master, Jesus. Our highest motivation is to see him happy with us. Now, of course, there are those who are not authentic believers, who that is not their highest ambition. There are those who have trusted Jesus with our life, and we've bought into the lie of the phony Christian life, that that has somehow faded from our, our ambitions in life, that we have allowed other things to kind of take uh, control of our ambition, to actually put that to the side and make other things the most important things in our lives. But th that is not the authentic Christian life. The authentic Christian life has a singular aim and focus, and it is all about pleasing our Lord. And every other ambition serves that greater ambition. So if we want to, you know, if we are ambitious about that, if we are pursuing that, we do desire that, then we got to ask the question, what pleases God, right? Because if we're trying to please our Lord, then the question is, how do I please my Lord, right? And for most of us who are in the, the authentic Christian life, we've spent our lives trying to decipher this, right? And we want to be pleasing to our, our Lord. We're looking for ways to please Him. And what's interesting is you'll find throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, you'll find that Scripture speaks much less about what choices you should make in life. I know a lot of us, you know, have struggled with this. Like, what's God's will for my life? What decision do I need to make? What path does God want me to go down? And that's not a bad thing, but the Scripture has far less to say about those decisions, those choices, and far more to say about why you're making the choice. What's your motivation in making the choices that you're making? And how are you going to go about doing what you do once you've made that choice? See, if we, uh, you know, have chosen a certain, certain path or chosen to do something and we're choosing to do whatever we're choosing to do in our own efforts, in our best foot forward for God, then that's called what? The flesh, right? The flesh is not looked down well. Because that's not how we were supposed to live. We weren't made to live to walk according to the flesh, to walk according to my efforts for God, my best foot forward for God to be pleased. But what is pleasing to God and actually what pleases him fully, not only because 
this is his desire for us, but because the results of this life, our righteousness, is living by the Spirit. When we allow the Spirit to empower us, the result of that is righteousness. And we're not going to rehash that ground because we, we looked at that you know, a few weeks ago. But that's the reality. When I'm allowing the Spirit to live and work through me, then I will see in my life love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those things will just come out because that's who the Spirit is and that's Christ's life in me. So to be pleasing to Him is pretty much boiled down to a simple, a simple concept. Am I going to do my best for God, or am I going to allow Him to work in and through me? Am I going to release my efforts to be the, the most righteous person I can be and allow Him to be righteousness through me? Because one is death, and the other is life. One is displeasing to God, in fact, Romans, I don't have this here, but Romans speaks about the fact that those who walk in the flesh cannot please God. Your best efforts for him, you can't please him. You cannot. It's impossible. So give it up if you're trying to please him. That's not the way. But we will please him if we're walking by the Spirit. And we've seen this throughout Paul's argument so far, which I'd like to show you a lot of verses right at the current moment. Let me just read these to you, okay? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence we have toward God through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That is pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That is pleasing to God. That we're transformed into Jesus' image when we're reliant upon the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and then a little bit of 10 says, But we have this treasure in earthen containers so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Of God and not from ourselves. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This is pleasing to our Lord. He wants to see himself in us. That's the goal. And the only way we can do that is when we live this authentic life that is transformed by the life of the Spirit in us. Because he will produce Christ's life. When our actions reflect the Christ's actions, what Christ would do if he was in our shoes, in our place. This is what's pleasing to the Lord. And then 2 Corinthians 5-7, we saw this last week. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. The pleasing life is a life of faith. Entrusting ourselves to the, Spirit's, to the Spirit to do his work. And we reject the life of sight. Literally, that word sight means outward appearance. That's what it means. So we live by faith, not by outward appearance. Those are your two options. Those seem like maybe mutually ex exclusive things, but they are not. And we've talked about this throughout 2 Corinthians. That we are either living and trusting ourselves to the Spirit, and the result of that is true life coming out in us, righteousness coming out in us. Or the other option is we live by appearance. Because we're living by our own efforts and we're failing constantly and all we can do is put on a good face. Those are your two options. Phony Christianity, authentic Christianity. Verse 10 says this. says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you uh, are theologically minded, uh, you're probably instantly going into your brain thinking about the Bema seat or the great white throne judgment, and you're like going through all the little machinations of that whole argument. We're not going to do that because I don't think that's Paul's point here at all, and I think this is how theologians get off from the text of the Scripture. And it takes us away to hit from his point. His point is this, and it's pretty clear if you just read it and you're not thinking about theological you know, wranglings. His point is plainly stated. There will be an accounting of our deeds 
done in our tent, in our body. There will be an accounting of deeds done in our tent. That's what he's saying. If you just take it clearly stated, that's what he's saying. He says, each one of us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, individually, without exception. I'm not appearing for you. You're not appearing for me. You're not going to have some sort of a lawyer working with you to try to work it. You're going to stand alone before God's, and our good deeds will be accounted for, and our bad deeds will be accounted for on that day. And he's clear here. He says, we will, look in the middle there. It says, we, each one, may receive compensation for deeds done in the body. Receive compensation literally means to get back in accordance with what is appropriate, okay? First and second century writings, anytime this word comes up, literally every instance that I could find, it's all in the context of like receiving wages, like I worked a job and I get some wages, or receiving interest on deposits that were made. And so, you know, the idea is if I deposit you know, money in the bank, you know, 3% for three years, after that three years is over, what should I get back? 3%, right? I invested it. That's what I get back, right? And that just makes sense, right? That's kind of the idea of this word here, receiving compensation. Now, we're instantly uncomfortable with this, right? <laughs> because what about justification by faith, right? It's not in view here. It's not what he's talking about here. Are we justified by faith alone through grace alone? Yes, we are, 100%. We are. Do not doubt that. Let's go to all the uh, passages that are going to refer to that. Okay? You and I are justified by faith, not by our works so that we may not boast. That is 100% the reality. So is Paul suggesting maybe that there's going to be some, like, different level of rewards in heaven? I have no idea. Some have posited that. I, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for that. Uh, I think that's just people trying to go, well, how does this work? Like, how do I make it work? Well, he's not really commenting on that specifically. That's not even his point. Let's get to his point. His point is live now as if you're going to give, give account for everything you do because you will give account for everything you do. Live now as if your actions now echo in eternity because they do echo in eternity. We will stand before God and, and have to give account for our lives and for our decisions. And I already know, looking back at my life, that there are going to be some embarrassing moments when I'm doing that. There are going to be some very shame-filled moments when I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened. So this should cause us to have a healthy fear of God, a healthy respect for his power and his justice. See, I think sometimes in our, in our modern concept of kind of the, the shiny, happy, teddy bear, Santa Claus, God, view of God, that, that we downplay the fear of God, and I think that's to our own detriment. I think that's to the world's detriment, but I also think that's to us individually our detriment. As if somehow fearing God is not the proper response to God, it is absolutely the proper response to God. Instead, anytime we come to any passages that maybe suggest that we should be fearful in some way, we opt for words like, uh, like deep respect or, or reverence or awe, and we should have deep respect and reverence and awe for our God. We definitely should, but I think we also should have a little bit of terror, that we should have a little bit of dread that is a proper motivating response to the immensity of who God is, the God of the universe. I think our world downplays his power and his person, and I think that seeps into our lives too, that we somehow downplay it. Look at this. Isaiah gets just a vision of God, just a snapshot of God. He's not there very long, it seems like, in the text. I mean, he shows up, and this is his response to that moment. Woe to me, for I am ruined. 
He doesn't say, hey, God, how's it going? We, we talk all the time. I'm one of your prophets. Like, we're like, no, no, no. He shows up and he's like, whoa to me. Like, whoa, we don't even have a good English word for this. Because whoa, I don't know, whoa, what, you know, whoa, I think of what I'm, you're riding a horse, right? Like, whoa, you know, like this is like, it's a word that means I am suffering greatly in this moment. I'm crushed. I'm desperately in trouble. Like he shows up, he sees God, he's like, I'm desperately in trouble, right? Like that's his response. He was a follower of God who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look, look at Isaiah's life, right? And he shows up and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm crushed. I, I, I'm so, I'm, I'm in agony right now. He says, I'm ruined, which means I'm destroyed. It's over for me. That's his response to seeing God. It's, it's over. I'm done. And we want Santa Claus God. I'm not saying that God's grace and his mercy isn't amazing, but his justice should bring some fear to us. In fact, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point. It's not even down the road. It's the first block. Psalm 34 says, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no lack of anything. We should have a proper fear of God. It is good for all people, including his people, to have a healthy fear of God. It should be sobering to us that all will be revealed before God. And he cannot be fooled. He cannot be deceived. He cannot be bribed or won over. He does not and will not show partiality to you or anybody else based on your status. We will have to give account to the all-powerful judge of all men for the decision we made yesterday. All of our masks and facades will all melt away. All of our excuses for what we did yesterday will mean nothing to him. All of our justifications, he's not hearing that. Be silenced. All of our emotional appeals to, to our victimhood, oh, uh, I, I just, I'm a victim, that's why I responded that way. He's, like, he's not hearing that. He will soberly and justly and impartially evaluate every moment of your life and my life. And we will have to give account for it. For every word we've spoken, for every thought we've indulged that no one else knew about, for every deed we've done. Point in your handout if you want to fill it in is the primary objective of the authentic Christian life is to please Jesus, knowing that we will one day have to explain our lives to him. The primary objective of the authentic Christian life is to please Jesus, knowing that we will one day have to explain our lives to him. I think sometimes in our, in our wanting to talk up what Jesus accomplished on the cross, which, which it's pretty hard not to talk it up, Right? we downplay this aspect of who our God is. And I think we need to hold it in tension. We need to hold it in balance. I think it's the best thing for us to do that. Verse 11. He says, therefore, based on what we just talked about, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that we should have this proper, we should be properly intimidated by God, properly in awe of him and have the proper respect for his might. Knowing that we have this fear, you know, Paul's saying for us, him and his buddies, we have the fear of the Lord. We persuade people. Knowing that this is a reality and that everyone will have to give account for their lives before 
Jesus, that they will stand before him and have to give account, Paul is trying to convince people. It motivates him to convince people of the truth because eternity is coming, and he knows eternity is coming, and everybody's going to have to be accountable for their actions. It's inevitable. So, you know, there's people that are living as if there's no God. It does not mean there is no God. There's a God. They're just living as if there's no God, and they're going to have to give account for every moment that they live as if there's no God, Right? People are living as if their actions don't have consequences in eternity, and that doesn't change the fact that every single one of their actions have consequences in eternity. And so Paul's looking at this going, I just need them to know the truth. The truth is their actions will have consequences in eternity. The decisions they're making now are not just momentary, you know, oh, I'm just going to go, you know, sow my seed or whatever, you know, sow my, my royal oats, and then, and then I'll, I'll get serious or whatever. No, every one of those moments you're going to have to be accountable to God for. And Paul's like, i got to tell you the truth, that you're going to have to stand before him and give account for that. So his life was about trying to convince people of these truths. He goes on, he says, but we are well known to God, and I hope that we also are well known in your consciences. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity, opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. He says, we are well known to God, which, which literally means exposed, revealed, God plainly sees everything in Paul's heart and his but in the hearts of his buddy. God plainly sees everything that is in our hearts, even when other people can't see it. We are plainly seen to God. And Paul's saying, I'm, I know I'm plainly seen to God, like I'm completely exposed before him, but also I want to be plainly seen to you. I want to live this life that's plainly seen that you know the real me, that I'm not putting on a mask, that you're not, you're seeing the real me. I'm, I'm breaking that mask apart and showing you the real deal me. I got to tell you, when I was reading this, I was like, this is such a deep thing in my heart because I lived for many years with this mask going on that when God finally tore that mask away, I, all I wanted to do is to, for people to see me like warts and all. I just wanted people to see the real Nate, like what's really going on with, with him and not cover up anything because I knew covering up anything was ugly and not what I wanted to do and, and would always, 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 anytime I tried to deceive or, or, or try to hide a little bit, it would always lead to these ugly things in my life. And I was like, I don't want any of that. I want to be exposed. I want everybody just to see everything. And so I hope those of you who know me, you, you know, like, I just kind of live openly, right? I just kind of, I'm just kind of me. So I can completely relate to Paul here as I just want, and I'm, I'm, I'll just say it, I want you to see nothing but me. I don't want to hide anything from you guys. I have no desire to do that. Now, my flesh does. There are moments, right, when I'm a bonehead and you're like, Nate, you're being a bonehead, I want to hide that moment, right? But, but hiding that moment means I'm going to hide other things. And I don't want to hide anything. If I'm going to be a bonehead, I want to be a real bonehead so everybody sees that big bone in my head, right? Like, just show it. He says, we want to be kind of exposed to you. This is Paul saying this. We just want to be real, honest, genuine, so that you know the real us and you can be proud of us. Proud means to, to place your confidence in. He's like, I want you guys to be confident that this is me, the real me, as opposed to these other guys, right? He's always comparing, or he compares a lot to this other group that had kind of infiltrated the Corinthian church, right? We don't know a lot about these guys, but these guys were living this phony Christian life, right? They were living this appearance-driven life. Paul's like, I don't, I don't want to be like them at all. I just want you to know exactly what's going on with me, and then you can be confident in our ministry because I'm not hiding anything. I'm not causing you to believe something that's not real. I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm just openly living the truth and speaking the truth with you. And you have these other people who, you know, were phonies. They were completely place, placing their confidence in appearance, right? That's the pride again, the confidence. It's placing confidence in their own appearance. And they, they were putting all of their efforts into appearing a certain way to the Corinthians, and we've talked about that, that that is just such 
such a hard life to live. And I know in a group like ours that there are some in this room right now that you've been living that life for a long time. And it's hard. It wears you out. That you put, you put all of your efforts into just keeping the facade up so that people can't see what's really going on. And we need to all embrace Paul's life here. Paul's pursuit of just breaking it down. I mean, think about, think about the people we have in this room. Do you really think that we are going to reject you if you break down that wall? I mean, there are people in this room that have broken down that wall and shown us some pretty ugly things, and we love them dearly. Right? Because we know that we all have ugly things that God has to work through and the Spirit has to bring life to those areas. And so break it down. Don't let the, our enemy keep telling you that you got to keep that wall up. It is not worth it to you. Break it down. Show yourself. Forget the appearances and be real with us. Because I guarantee you the people in this room want to love you through that. Want to love you with that thing that you wish they wouldn't know. Verse 13, he says, for, for if we have lost our minds, it is for God. If we, have if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. He's like, you know what? Sometimes the way we act, because we're just being real, being us, sometimes it looks crazy. But if we're crazy, it's, it's because we're nuts for God. What do you say, Right? And occasionally, you know, we, we may look sane, and if we look sane, it's because we love you. The authentic Christian life is, is out of step with culture. It, it just is. We live inside this culture, but we're out of step with it. And so the world around us is going to act certain ways and going to have certain standards, and we're going to be out of step with that. We're not going to act the same ways, and our standards are going to be different than their standards. And so it's going to look weird, and people are going to look strangely at us at times and go, Man, that's just odd. Like, you're just a little different. And it's like, yeah, I, yeah, it's because Jesus is a little different. And I, I'm just trying to allow his spirit to be him through me. And so it's going to look a little different. And, and the big difference, the big difference maker in the authentic Christian life is that the love of Christ is a motivating factor, is the motivating factor behind everything in the authentic Christian life. And it's not just love. It's not just love that love is the motivation, but it is Christ's love that is the motivation, the love of Christ, which is very, 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 very different than the way our world loves, than common love. I think this is why defining terms is so important. Uh, one one of, my, of my criticisms that I've mentioned before of the progressive Christian movement is they spend a lot of time redefining terms. They just do that because they want to use the same language, but they're not saying the same thing, right? And so we got to define our terms really, really well. Phony Christianity is going to tout love all day. I love you. But it's ultimately, when you boil it down, it's selfish love. It's not Christ's love. Sure, I'll sacrifice for anyone. I'll do any, anything for anyone, as long as, you know, I know I'm going to, that's going to be reciprocated somehow, right? I'll accept any behavior that you do as long as you accept all of my behavior that I do. The moment you don't, suddenly, mm -hmm, love's not happening anymore. I'll give you the freedom to be anyone you want. You be you, but, but you got to let me be me. You know, she's the most loving person in the world. She's like the most loving person you would ever meet. Just don't get on her bad side. Right? That's common love. Everybody's the most loving person you'll ever meet until you get on their bad side, right? That's not, that's not something to tout. That's not something to be proud of. Because the root of that kind of love is always me. It always comes back to me. And we are those 
who Christ's love compels us to action. This selfish kind of love is actually not that hard to spot in others and in our own lives, which probably is the place we should start. Just think about for yourself, how do, how do I respond when I don't get my way? Like, how do I respond to that moment? Does love continue when it's not reciprocated? Do I continue to love someone who's not loving me back? Or do I write them off? Create some space? Do I continue to sacrifice when I don't get the response that I want? Or when my sacrifices aren't recognized by the people I'm sacrificing for? Like, they don't even notice. It's like they don't even care. I'm done. What's the root of that? Me. Right? It's easy to identify. I don't, I don't think we like it. We don't want to identify it because we, we can see it ourselves, right? Or maybe when all else, else fails and, like, nothing's going right and no one's, you know, loving us right or whatever, then we quickly pivot to the victim card. So we get, a, we get a little bit of sympathy from people, right? Man, nobody sees what I do for them, and no one, mm, like I, I just give and give, and no one gives back, and yeah, Nate, it's okay, Nate, you know, right? Christ's love is so different. The love of Christ that compels us is so different than that. Christ's love compelled him to give up the eternal weight of glory, which we all want, right? We were talking about last week, like, whoo, that's exciting. Like, this is a precursor to that. The eternal weight of glory. He actually went the other way and gave that up so that he could experience affliction, perplexity, persecution, <laughs> being struck down. Are you crazy? Like, who does that? Who sacrifices that much for others? Christ's love compelled him to keep loving when he was despised and rejected by the ones he came to save. In that moment, when he was despised and rejected, he loved. He kept loving as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was very familiar with grief. And he kept loving. He kept loving when we esteemed him not, meaning we had no respect for him, and we continue not to have respect for him, and he keeps loving. Are you insane? Like, who does that? That's not, that's, that's ridiculous. Love doesn't continue under those circumstances. Christ's love does. The love that compels us does. He gave his life for those who had done nothing nor could do anything for him. We did nothing for him, nor even if we tried, could we have done anything for him. And he gave up his life for us when we could offer nothing to him. Nothing, literally nothing. Are you nuts? Who loves when there is nothing in it for themselves? Like, not even a little bit. Well, Christ does. And this is the love that compels us. And if we love this way, if we love like Christ's love, which, by the way, we can only do not in our own efforts, but relying upon the Spirit to allow Jesus to love through us, if we can do that, then we will seem, seem bonkers to other people. We will. Because other people will go, what? why are you doing that? Like, why are you loving that way? That's just too much. But it's that kind of love that motivates and compels the authentic Christian life. He goes on about halfway down there. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Jesus died to kill us. Jesus died to cause us to die to ourselves. 
Jesus died to move our primary motivation in life from loving ourselves supremely, which is the natural state of mankind, to loving God and others. Away from loving ourselves to loving them. Jesus died to stomp out our self-centered motivations and to stir up other-centered decision-making in our lives. Jesus died to wipe out the self-inward-focused life that's kind of about me and how I'm feeling, what's going on with me, and to stoke the fires of the outward-focused life. How are you feeling? How can I care for you? How can I serve you? I'm not feeling great, but it doesn't matter because I just need to know how I can meet you in what you need. He died for that. And it's not for show. It's not for others to be like, oh, hmm, lovely. It's not virtue signaling to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of am interested in that. Jesus, go Jesus, right? But like, it's not about that. It's about real, genuine, selfless love expressed to those around us. The authentic Christian life no longer lives for self. It lives and breathes Jesus. It fully embraces yielding to a love like Jesus showed us. We show that to others. And it can only be possible when his love controls us, when he controls us, when we take our hands off the wheel and allow Jesus to take the wheel. I don't know why I just said that, but that's the idea. right? Like, we're not in control anymore. We go, hey, I know I can't love the people around me the way you love the people around me, so I gotta let go. I gotta let you love them, because my love is pretty lame. Help me love them. Love them through me, with your love. put it in your handout if you want to fill it in, is the motivating factor of the authentic Christian life is to love with Jesus' love by his controlling influence. The motivating factor of the authentic Christian life is to love with Jesus' love by his controlling influence. He finishes off with these last couple verses here, or at least the ones we're going to finish off with for this week. He says, therefore, again, he's building arguments here, right? Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh. Even though we have known Christ by the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Remember, this idea of flesh means only human, right? Just in our humanness. Many at this time had seen Jesus as a mere mortal, right? They had seen Jesus walking around, and he was this dude that, like, Walked around like every other dude on the planet, right? He was just walking around doing stuff and talking to people and just, you know, seemed like a normal guy, right? Paul himself saw Jesus in this way for much of his life. He's just this normal guy who's like a heretic, what Paul thought for many years. But Paul was completely wrong. He viewed him as, a, as just any old guy, and he was completely wrong about that. Jesus was far more than that. And in the same way, what he's calling us to do is to think about that. Think about the fact that people treated Jesus as just a normal old, old guy. And, and even till today, there are people who just treat Jesus as a normal old, like he was just a regular dude that people got the wrong idea about or whatever, right? He was just a regular human, right? But Paul's saying, don't view him that way because obviously he's far more than that. But also in that same way, we need to view each other that way. We can look at each other, and even though we look like we're just normal human beings, because on the outside, we all look pretty normal, right? Some of us look a little weirder than others, but we all look pretty normal for, I'm talking about myself, by the way. Uh, We all look pretty normal as humans, right? But we should not view each other as normal old humans, because we are these ones that have the treasure, the most valuable treasure in the universe 
inside of us. And that is the most defining quality of our lives now is not the outward container, right? Not the, not the earthen vessel. That's not the most important thing about us. It's what we contain. So we should not view each other as primarily, from a primarily human perspective as if we're just mere mortals because we are not just mere mortals, not anymore. We are containers of the God of the universe, And that reality of having the Spirit inside of us has made all the difference. Look at the next thing he says here. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are an authentic believer this morning, this is absolutely true of you. If you have placed your trust from yourself and completely placed your trust in him, this is true of you. And look what he says. If anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old has passed away, is dead and buried in God, dead as a doornail. Behold, new things have come. The authentic Christian is a completely new creation. This word creation that he uses here is primarily used of God's creative acts. We can't create like God creates. That's why this word is not used of us, like things that we do. We can recreate things, right? I can take some dirt and recreate it into some sort of a pot or something, right? But none of us do real, actual creation from nothing. And that's the term used here. Every other time it's used, particularly in the Old Testament, the the Greek version of of, of the Old Testament, it's used of God's creative works. What God did, or it's describing the creation around us, which is everything that God did, right? And so it's this idea of starting from scratch and creating something completely new. And that's exactly what he did with you and me. We are not who we used to be. We are now something completely and utterly new. Look what he says here. Psalm 8.3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. If you look up at the moon, if you look up at the stars, God created those things from nothing. And they are fantastic, right? They are amazing things to see. Just do that tonight. Go out on your front lawn and just look up, right? It's like, whoa. Psalm 139 says, For you created my innermost parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. This is his creative acts of weaving us together to create this massively complex and amazing body that we have, that we usually take for granted, but it is amazing. I have a friend who who went through medical school, and he said, and he's a doctor now, and 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 he said, you know, some people like pit Christianity and science like as against each other or whatever. And he's like, no, as I was studying all of the scientific data about the human body, I, was ju- I just spent all of my schooling just being in awe of the creator of the universe because it's so amazing, these bodies that we have. Like, it's crazy, right? I see Emma nodding there, right? Yeah, right? It's, it's crazy how, how these things are made, Right? To out of nothing weave together this is, is wow, right? And that's what he's describing here. Out of nothing making you completely new. He didn't remake the old you into something else. He killed the old you, old you and created the new you. The old thing is gone. And the phony Christian life spends all of their time with the old them trying to put makeup on it, right? And going, I could make this look good or whatever, right? But authentic Christian life is a completely new being in Christ. It's actually the word creature, which is kind of weird. Like you're a completely new creature. That sounds like, you know, something from the Blue Lagoon or something. Like, like you're just a totally new thing. And so as an authentic Christian, being a totally new thing, even though the enemy will try to convince you that nothing much has changed about you, and I hear that way too often, everything has changed for you, our enemy will try to convince us to treat each other like nothing much has changed with each other, but the truth is everything has changed 
your ambition, my ambition is to please the Lord. The love of Christ is compelling, is the compelling motivation of our lives. And you died and you're no longer yourself, but you live now for Christ. The real you is that new thing. And so I, I'm going to take some of our culture's things and say, that's the real you, so be the real you, right? You do you, just like the real new you, you, Right? Live your most authentic self. That is your most authentic self, is this new creation in Christ. And every time we get together, we should be looking at each other and thinking about the fact that you and 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 you are all way more than what we see because of what Christ has done. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is every authentic Christian has been made completely new in Christ. While we can't see it on the outside, the real us is nothing like the old us then. The real us now is nothing like the old us then. New, real, old are the three blanks. The summary I completely stole from Ray Steadman this week. So here we go. We're just going to look at, at his words here. I just liked it a lot. I wanted to include it. He says, The risen life we now live is different from the old life. It is no longer self-centered, loving itself supremely. It is outward-directed. It reaches out to others naturally and without self-consciousness. It is not a put-on, but real. Whenever we yield to the love of Christ, says Paul, that is the way we act, and his love is the reason we act that way. Once we have yielded to that love, we cannot help being self-giving, for that is the way his love is. The love of Christ controls us. Yes, life as a Christian is totally, radically different. Impelled by the twin motives of fear of God and the love of Christ, it goes counter to the normal impulses of life. It is that new creation envisioned by the prophets already begun. Right in the midst of the decay of the old creation, the new is rising. Eternity is invading time, urged on, driven, and mastered by love. We will continue to swim against the current of this darkening age until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are just so thankful for this new creation, this new person that you've made us. Sometimes it's hard to see that, especially when we have behavior that looks like the old us. It's hard for us to remember that we are new in you. But Lord, help us to see each other this way. Help us to see ourselves this way, that we are new people in you that live to please you supremely, that desire to love those around us with the love that you give, not the love we can produce ourselves. And as we live this new life in you, may we seem a little weird to the outside world but weird in a way that draws them to you, draws them to your love and to your person, your character. And Lord, we know we can only do that when we're dependent upon you, so we live to be dependent upon you. Help us to find ways in every area of our life to entrust ourselves to you, entrust our behavior and our words and our thoughts to you. Pray this all in your name. Amen.